hope of righteousness is in what Jesus has done for us. That's the only place uh, to find rest. It's not in anything we've done. Um, and so that, that song really sets up uh, the second half of Romans for us this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans. And um, if you were here last week, um, I made it through a, a good chunk of Romans, hoping to do uh, the whole book in one sermon, but there's just so much, uh, and I wanted to make sure we gave attention to uh, really the second, the second half of the book of Romans, and so we're going to spend our time this morning there, um, basically Romans chapter 8 uh, through 16. Um, so this is the Romans overview part two, and the way I want to begin this morning is by reading from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This has been called by many throughout history as the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Um, Now, I don't know how you can truly say that because it's all from God, so it's all equally good, but um, I do understand the the sentiment the more I understand Romans chapter 8. Did anyone hear a word I just said? (laughs) So we don't need microphones. We don't need amplification. So um, you should know that Charles Spurgeon, a guy who maybe we talk a lot about from time to time, he had a, a, a pastor's college. And one of the requirements to get into his pastor's college in the days of no amplification was you had to have a certain chest size. And so if you did not, if your chest size, which mine woefully falls short, uh, he is actually so dogmatic to say, like, you are not called to be a minister, a preacher, a pastor, uh, if you don't have at least this minimum uh, chest size. So he was a man of small stature, but he had a he had a big chest, I guess, and a booming, a booming voice. That is not what we're talking about. This morning, so look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and I'm going to read here through verse 11. You will recognize some of the things I'm about to read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, we fully acknowledge this morning, recognize that uh, the words that we have just read um, are not mere words, not like any other ancient book or document, but that in these words, there is the power of life. There is the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes. These words are living and active, and they come alive as we hear them by your spirit carrying them to our hearts. And so I pray that what we are about to do this morning in receiving your word, meditating on it, uh, would not be a mundane thing, would not be a thing of routine, but that we would recognize it as an opportunity to receive power, to be strengthened by, to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to be reminded of our salvation, our freedom in Christ. And I pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives. So we pray now that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts to behold the wondrous things that you have prepared for us here. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as I said, we considered mostly the first half of Romans. Um, and really, that it's it kind of like what Romans, if you were to take it on the whole, is all about. It's all about making the gospel clear. Um, and in order to understand the gospel, one of the, the big words that we focused on last week is understanding justification. So do you understand what re- what is required for you to stand justified before a perfect and holy God. And Paul makes this case and explains it and goes really in depth to help us understand there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to earn righteousness before God. You cannot stand justified before a holy God because of your sin. Because sin is incompatible with holiness, and therefore something must happen to bring these two things together, sinful man and perfect and holy God. And so Paul told us, God has made us, he has created us for a purpose, to bring glory to him, and yet we have chosen to turn away. We have rebelled, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 23, and he tells us that because of this, we cannot earn righteousness. 
We can follow the law, we can follow the moral law, we can try to be good people, but the more that we do that, the more we will understand how we fall short. Some of the Jewish people, they were putting all their trust in their ability to keep the law, in their ability to be good Jewish people, to be good, God-fearing, religious people. But what happens is the law just exposes how much they are not like God and how much they need him to make them what they cannot be. And so Paul tells us the only way that you can be made righteous is by entrusting your life to Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can stand justified before a holy God. And this faith is not merely believing up here. I love to use the word trust or entrust because it is taking your life and placing it in the hands of Jesus as if to say, do with me as you please. That's what it means to trust in God, to have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ in order to stand righteous before a holy God. So faith is the instrument of our justification. It is the way by which we are made righteous with a holy God. Faith faith is replacing our own self-reliance on reliance on Christ alone, just like in the song that we just sang. sang. Taking our self-reliance, the idea that we can earn our way to God, and replacing it with a complete dependence on Christ for salvation. And so Paul makes this big point, it's only if we are in him, and he uses this, I like to tell, tell people he, he uses the phrase in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved, over a hundred times, I think over 160 times in the New Testament, that's the way, uh, that the term, the phrase that he uses to describe faith in Christ, the fact that we are in Christ. And he says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. So you agree, you profess, Jesus is Lord, he's master. And you believe, you trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is 100% true. You never need to question that. If you confess with your mouth, if you agree with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe truly in your heart, you trust him, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Well, for many, this was and still is today a revolutionary idea. Believe it or not, this goes against like every fiber of our beings in some way that wants to know that we have somehow proved our love to him, that we have somehow earned our way into favor, into the good graces of God. It means that no good deeds, no good works that we can do can save us. No acts of righteousness are going to bring us into right standing with God. No mere fact of our ethnicity, our religious upbringing, our heritage is going to make us worthy to be called sons of God, children of God. Only in trusting the one that God sent to save you from your sin. This is the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that all of us are sinners and we are helpless in and of ourselves. But the good news is that Jesus 
came to bridge a chasm that no human could ever bridge. Again, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, not while we were worthy, good, righteous people, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, for those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1, there is now no longer any condemnation. Because the law of the spirit of life, the principle, if you will, of the spirit of life has now set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law that says you can do and do and work and work and work, but you will never find life. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from this law of sin and death. I brought this uh, quote with me because I actually just found it this morning in a book. I was trying to find it um, and I couldn't, but then I came across it this morning uh, because I think it's really helpful to explain uh, the difference between trying to be a good person to earn God's favor and always living in fear. Have I done enough? Because I think a lot of people you talk to on the street and you say, are you going to heaven or hell? And they have a general sense of, of religious awareness about them. Um, are kind of hoping that they will get to heaven, hoping that when they stand before God uh, one day that he will accept what they've done. But they live in fear in many ways, and maybe some of you live in fear even as a Christian because of certain things you do that make you question, like, am I really in Christ? And you need to hear Romans 8, 1 this morning. Uh, Maybe this will be helpful to you. Um, So this is a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, Um, British preacher in the middle of the last century. Uh, He says, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of the state and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. The husband is not breaking the law, He is wounding the heart of his wife. That is the difference. It is no longer a legal matter. It is a matter of personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband legally in that instance. Law does not even come into the matter at all. In in a sense, it's now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against a law of the land objectively and outside me than hurt someone whom I have loved. You have sinned, of course, but you have sinned against love. So you may and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Life in Christ means that because we love him, because he is the most important person to us, because we have this relationship of having been shown mercy and welcomed into his family, means that we no longer want to do what our flesh wants. Now, Paul said in Romans 7, there are times when when I don't do what I want, but deep down in my inner being, I want to serve God because I love him. I have a relationship with him. He says that old mindset that that we were controlled by the flesh, that goes away 
when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And life in Christ means that now, rather than being controlled by our flesh, we have been indwelt by the very Spirit of Christ. And this morning, what I want to talk about, I know that was a a long introduction and a little bit all over the place, but I want to talk about is what does it mean, what does it look like to have life in the Spirit? As Christians, when we place our lives into the hands of Jesus, when we trust him with our life, one of the things that happens is we receive his spirit in our lives. His spirit comes to dwell in the heart, in the life of every Christian. And I used to think for a time when I was a, uh, a young adult or maybe even into my early 20s that understanding what it means to live by the Spirit was being able to go into a worship service and get really stirred up and really emotional, and that confirmed the fact that I have the Spirit. But the more the the way that the Scriptures talk about life in the Spirit, it talks about them in 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 a different way in the sense of the Spirit bears witness that we love God. The Spirit is the controlling force in us that makes us want to do the will of God, that makes us want to be obedient, not to live in fear that if we don't do enough, we won't earn it, but the Spirit gives us whatever that is that makes us want to love what Christ loves, to love what God loves, and to hate the things that would offend Him. The Spirit is our source of new life as Christians. The Spirit is the power of regeneration. It's what makes us new. And so Romans chapter 8 introduces us to this idea of life in the Spirit. You remember what Mike read earlier. If the same Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Think about what happened when the Spirit raised. He says the Spirit is the one, the person of God, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Think of what was going on in that moment. The Spirit was giving once and for all victory over sin. That Spirit now lives in you. The Spirit was bringing about incorruptible life, life that would remain forever. That Spirit now lives in you. The Spirit was giving assurance and confirmation that Jesus was God, Jesus was God's only Son. That Spirit now gives assurance to you that you are a child of God in Christ Jesus. The Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So I just want to go through four headings this morning. Um, what it is that the Spirit does in the life of a believer. And one of the ways you can think of this is kind of as a, a, a diagnostic this morning. Does the Spirit live in me? If the Spirit lives in me, then these will be true. And if at the end of today you, you come to a point where you say, I don't think the Spirit is in me. I don't think the Spirit indwells in me because this is, these are not my desires. This is, uh, this is not what I am wanting to make of my life. If that's the case, then I pray that this would be an opportunity to plead with God, to turn your life over to Him, 
and to ask his spirit to come and dwell in you. So number one, life in the spirit will change your want to's. Did you hear the Oklahoma coming out of me in that first point? Life in the spirit will change your want to's. Your want to's. Let's say that a little better. What do I mean by that? When the spirit comes to dwell in your life, when the spirit comes to dwell in your heart, it will result in a change of your desires. Anybody here ever, show of hand, life before coming to Christ, you had no concern to do the will of God, no concern for the things of God, no joy in really participating in the life of God. Was that any of you before you became a Christian? And then what happened after that moment when you placed your trust in Christ, when you gave your life to him, did your, did your eyes not open, did your mind not open to a new way of living such that the things of God now became beautiful to you, now became enjoyable to you? The things that you no longer wanted to do, maybe such as gathering with God's people on a Sunday morning, it used to feel like legalism and drudgery now, drudgery now felt like the thing I have to do because it's the thing I want to do because the Spirit has changed my want to's. A rule-keeping religion, which is how how many people view Christianity, a rule-keeping religion of drudgery no longer makes sense to the born-again Christian. Because for the born-again Christian, it is joy to obey the will of God. Conversely, it means that a life of sinful disregard for the things of God or a life of just unbridled giving yourself over to bodily cravings and passions, that being an attractive thing, completely goes away. We have found in God, because of his spirit, we have found superior pleasures available in walking with God. We no longer want to give our bodies over, our lives over to the things of this world because we have met superior pleasures in God. So number one, life in the spirit changes our want-tos. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Number two, life in the spirit brings assurance of faith. Life in the Spirit brings assurance of faith. Look in verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Hear that? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive 
the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, About seven years ago now, I was uh, getting together on a Tuesday morning with a group of guys um, over at at Overland Overland Hills Church, and we would get together for uh, coffee. I think it was at McDonald's or something. Um, And we were really on fire um, and decided that we were going to memorize an entire chapter of the Bible. Like we wanted to like really hold each other accountable and when we came together, we were gonna work on it together because we wanted to memorize an entire chapter of the Bible and the chapter that we decided on was Romans chapter eight. Now, don't ask me to recite it now because I don't think I could get through it all the way. I could do bits and pieces of it, but I'd probably be nervous and and mess up. But I can tell you one of the greatest decisions of my life in terms of what to study or what to do in discipleship was setting out to memorize Romans chapter 8. And it's kind of surprising the reason why it has become one of the most uh, meaningful and one of the passages of scripture that sticks most with me to this day. It was not what I expected uh, would be the reason, but the reason why Romans 8 is probably one of the most influential chapters in my life and one which I can still uh, pull just about every verse from is because that in almost every trial that I've gone through subsequent to that time, almost every time of, of failing and giving in to temptation and being at that place where I just wanna, God, am I even a Christian? Do I even have the spirit in me? What comes back into my mind and in my heart over and over again are these verses. There is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit in those moments of trial or in those moments of temptation that no, I am a child of God. The Spirit helps me in times of weakness to cry out, Abba, Father, and the fact that my Spirit wants to go there, the fact that that my heart wants to go there in those moments tells me something. I am not like other people. (laughs) The rest of the world is not going to those places in their moments of trial, in their moments of, they're not even thinking about temptation as temptation because they don't even care. But in those moments when I am led to cry out, Abba, Father, forgive me, the Spirit bearing witness with my spirit that I am a child of God and telling me I no longer live in slavery, but I am free to love God, that is, for me, assurance of salvation. Does the Spirit do that work in your life? Does the Spirit do that work in your heart when you find yourself in a trial, when you find yourself overcome by sin? Is that met with a response? Maybe not immediately, because you're growing, you're growing, you're growing, but is that met with a response at some point that says, I don't want to be that. I'm a different person. This is not who you have created me to be. I want to, I love what God loves and therefore I am not okay with my sin. I am no, I am no, not okay with that way of life. 
Well, in this way, life in the Spirit is a means of assurance for our sal- of salvation. And how many people have you, how many people here, I'm sorry, I'm so tongue twisted today. How many people here this morning are here because they want to be with the family of God on the Lord's day? You don't have to raise your hand, but you yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing that. You are not like other people. And that tells me something. If I could just encourage your heart this morning, I know this can sometimes be a place of rebuke and reproof, but this morning, if I can just be super encouraging to you this morning, that is because the Spirit of God lives in you. You are free in Christ Jesus. But you're free, guess what? Not to go on sinning, because you don't want to, right? You're free to love God. You're free to participate in His will. You're free to offer your life as a living sacrifice and to be okay with it. And we're gonna get there in Romans chapter 12. But first, kind of an interlude, Romans 9 through 11. If this were a sermon series, we would probably spend 30 weeks in Romans 9 through 11. Not gonna do that today. But I'm gonna bring it under the heading of this. Life in the Spirit changes the way you view your own salvation as well as those who are not saved. Life in the Spirit changes the way that you view your own salvation as well as those who are not yet saved. Coming off of Romans chapter 8, Paul has to kind of address the elephant in the room. If the chosen people of God are the people, the sons of God, he says in Romans 8, are the people who the Spirit of Christ dwells in them, and yet you have the chosen people of God who have all rejected Christ, then does that mean that God's word has failed? His, his promised people of God, Israel, the chosen people of God, they have rejected the promised one, and you're telling me that son, the sons of God are only those who accept Christ and live by his spirit. What's going on here? So Paul moves to to explain the tragedy of missing out on justification, the tragedy of rejecting fellowship with God by rejecting his son, Jesus Christ, the tragedy of rejecting life in the spirit by rejecting the one who came to justify. His own people are the ones who nailed to the cross the one who came to give them life. Jesus The Messiah, rather than being a a savior and a hope for eternal life to Israel, had become a stumbling block for the Jewish people. And it's because the salvation that he came to offer through his death and by his life really just put away, destroyed any form of self-reliance, any means of earning their own salvation, any means of boasting in themselves, self-sufficiency and self-justification. It was offensive to them to think, that they, just like everyone else, needed to put their trust in this Savior to make them righteous. To say that Jesus is the only way for sinners to be saved is to admit that you are a sinner with no capacity to please God. That's what he says in Romans chapter 8. The one in the flesh cannot please God. It's to admit that you cannot please God or have fellowship with Him. And to submit to Jesus is to let someone else dictate the terms of your life. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with Jesus 
telling you what to do? Are you okay with Jesus determining the outcome of your life? This is hard. This is costly. We talked about this morning in in youth Sunday school. And I said, do you know there's a verse in the Bible where Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, uh, you cannot be my disciple. And one of my own sons, I won't say who it was, was like, what? Like, that's not in the Bible. It's like, all right, turn turn to Matthew right now. But it's hard and it's costly to admit I have no hope. I have nothing apart from putting my life in the hands of this man, Jesus. So for the majority of his Jewish brothers, it was something that they were unwilling to do. But then Paul goes on to explain to the Gentiles, to the nations, how the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, which resulted in his crucifixion, think about this, actually served to bring about salvation for them. So the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, which was a part of God's sovereign plan, served to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles. And now that the fact that salvation has come to the Gentiles and they're experiencing life in Christ, it is going to, he says, make the Jews jealous that they may be drawn into a relationship uh, with Christ. Now, just... How mind-blowing is it to think about that for a second? Like if you were to plan out the salvation of the world, to plan it out by saying, my chosen people are going to crucify my chosen son so that other people can have the hope of eternal life and salvation through my son, such that in experiencing their salvation, my chosen people would then be drawn to look upon the redemption that is available through my son. Did you catch all that? I didn't. So tell me what I just said after the sermon. But it's, it shows us that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our, our ways. But at the beginning of the letter, he makes justification very clear. And, the, and one of the reasons he makes it clear is to let us know there can be no bus boasting in and of yourself if you are in Christ Jesus. The fact that Jesus is the one who saves us excludes all boasting. And now he recognizes that there may be a temptation among the Gentiles to somehow begin to think that, oh, the Jewish people have blown it, but we have figured it all out. Have you ever thought like that? And you may think that you've never thought like that, but I guarantee you, you have. How many of you, how many of you, when you think of a lost coworker who really annoys you or a lost family member who just can't seem to get it right, how many of you think, Begin to think at least subtly in your head, like, what is wrong with them? Like, why can't they just see what I see? Why don't why won't they just get their acts together? Why don't they just why don't they just shape up? And what we want them to do is start acting like a Christian, even though they have not received mercy, they don't have the spirit dwelling in them that we do. And so Paul warns against our becoming boastful are thinking that we have somehow, we are the righteous ones who have figured it out ourselves. He reminds us that we only belong to Christ because God has grafted us into his family. We have only received mercy because God has chosen to show us mercy. And the right response to this mercy is not to hate those who haven't, not to look down on those who haven't, but instead to exalt Christ and to display his salvation in a way, in a way, 
that winsomely draws others in to know him as Lord and Savior. The promise remains, Paul says, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. And his response to this is, so we got to send people. We got to preach. We got to make Christ known so that other people will come to a saving knowledge, a saving faith in Christ Jesus, which is only going to come through their hearing this gospel message. Paul is always quick to destroy any boasting that would somehow rob glory from Christ, that would somehow get in the way of us seeing that we have been a recipient of God's mercy, that we have received the blessing of his mercy, and it's not because of anything that we have done, only because of what he has done for us. And maybe he spells it out most explicitly in Romans 9, 16, where he says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I know this brings up a lot of issues that sometimes get people wrapped around the axle. Um, But all I can say by reading Romans 9 is this, the decisive cause in your coming to be saved is not the exertion of your own will, but it's God having shown you mercy. And Paul's response to that is is not to say, therefore we shouldn't evangelize because God will show mercy to whom he has shown mercy. No, Paul's response is because we have received mercy, let's share in what the work God has given us to do to preach mercy to those who have not yet known it so they can come to share in these same glorious truths and to share in the spirit of Christ. So we delight. Romans 9 through 11, it leads me to simply just sit back and delight in the fact that I couldn't have done anything to receive this gift of righteousness. I couldn't have done anything to receive the spirit of God. But I want those who have not, I want them to experience it too. So I am going to plead and I'm going to pray and I'm going to preach and I'm going to pursue those who have not yet known him. That they might experience the same. How will they hear, Paul says, unless someone tells them? Christian brothers and sisters, how are they going to hear unless you tell them. I don't know why, but in God's infinite wisdom, he has chosen us to be the instruments of that message. Take the message of his mercy and salvation to the ends of the earth. The final point here about life in the spirit is that life in the spirit is a life of responding to God's mercy with sacrificial service that puts his mercy on display. Life in the Spirit is a life of responding to God's mercy with sacrificial service that puts His mercy on display. This is really Romans 12 through 14. And one of the things about Paul's letter often is he he packs them, he front loads uh, his letters with very dense theology very dense explanations for who God is, uh, why Christ came to die, who we are in Christ. And then out of that, what he does in the second half of most of his letters is he then says, 
In light of everything that you have just learned, here's what it means. Here's what it looks like in your life. Here is the fruit that will be born out of what I have just told you about in the first few chapters. And so we come to Romans chapter 12, and you can turn there to Romans chapter 12. And you have a really big therefore. And I don't know how many of you have heard this, but if you ever see a therefore, particularly in Paul's letters, what it should cause you to say is, what is the therefore, therefore? So Romans chapter 12 is a really big therefore, which pretty much takes all of Romans 1 through 11 and says, because of this, because Christ has died for your sins, because you have been shown mercy, though you didn't deserve mercy, because the Spirit of God now dwells in you, therefore, here's what you need to do. This is what life in the Spirit looks like. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. If the Spirit lives in us, this is how we ought to live our lives, both individually and also in relation to everyone he has called us to around us, everyone he has called us to live life with. You think of this like maybe one of the easiest illustrations here to understand this is that uh, when the Spirit makes you a new creation, um, it's kind of similar to the way that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. I know this is a common children's illustration, but how ridiculous it would be for the butterfly now having wings to spend the rest of his life crawling on the ground. So it is the same way in which we become spirit-indwelt beings. We are no longer those meant to live by the flesh, but we are to live in such a way that God can carry us on to do the things he has called us to do. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Now that... Those words there are, are um, maybe not the best translated words in our day and age because spiritual worship is going to mean probably two different things than you're thinking of here. If you had the King James Version, um, I think it actually says, this is your reasonable service or your logical service. This is what you have been called to do as a Christian, the natural result of me putting my spirit in you is for you to offer your life as a vessel to be used by God for his grand purposes. Romans 9.23 says that we are vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. And so he says, don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. Don't don't get attached to what the world tells you you ought to be and what you ought to do. Do you know what the world's patterns are? The world's purposes are for you? Um, pretty much can be boiled down to a couple things. Self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. That's kind of what the world tells you you ought to do with your life. Whatever feels good, do it. 
And whatever you do, do what you want to do. How many messages do we see in commercials and uh, pop psychology and, and New York Times bestsellers that are basically saying, this is how you can do what you want to do and be the best you that you can be. It talks nothing of being a living sacrifice. That's what somebody who's still in the flesh would do. They would want to exalt themselves. They would want to do whatever they want to do. They would want to give in to all of their pleasures and be ruled by those pleasures. But you, spirit-led Christian, have been enabled and empowered and given the want to to offer your life as a holy and pleasing sacrifice to God. And so really, he's going to spend the rest of Romans, Romans 12 through 15, unpacking what this looks like. And the first place he goes to in Romans uh, chapter 12, if you even look at the headings in your Bible, it says gifts of grace. The first thing he talks about is how we've been given gifts by the Spirit, and therefore we should use them to serve the body of Christ. Not thinking about ourselves, not thinking about what we want to do with our time, but wanting to build up the body of Christ because we've been given gifts of the Spirit to do so. In Romans 12, 9, well, actually it's Romans, yep, Romans 12, 9 and on, you see maybe the heading says marks of the true Christian. This is what it looks like as those indwelt by the Spirit to offer your lives as living sacrifices. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That word hospitality, compound word, seek to show love for the stranger. So we're to have brotherly affection, love like a brother, and we're supposed to apply that love to strangers such that they become like brothers in the same way that Christ showed love to us. Living as a, uh, offering your life as a living sacrifice means 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, how in the world would we get to a place where we think that this is a good thing? To feed our enemy or to give him a drink or to try to live peaceably with those who are opposed to us or to bless those who persecute us or to show love to people who are utterly strangers and aliens who, who 
we may not trust because we don't yet know. Where would we get an idea to do something like that? Where would we find the motivation to do something like that? Ask yourself, do I understand the gospel? Who was I at the time Christ died for me? Was I the one worth loving? Was I the one who was ready to do his will at all times? Where I was, was I the one singing his praises? No, I was the one cursing him. I was the one who had the venom of snakes on my tongue, as it says in Romans chapter three. I was, in a sense, because of my sin, the one nailing him on the cross. And how did he respond? He loved me. He welcomed me like a stranger into his family. Rather than pay me for what I deserved, he laid down his life so that I could have fellowship with him. This is what Jesus did for me. And guess what? His spirit now lives in you. That tells me that you're able to do this because of what Christ has done for you. I mean, think about that in your marriages, times when maybe communication is broken and you get in an argument and you're, you're tempted to think, what is wrong with her? What is wrong with him? Why can't they just get it together? They don't deserve my love. I am going to not talk to them. I'm going to cut them out of my life for the next 10, hour, 10 minutes to two days. Recall in your mind, because you have the spirit in you, how did Christ respond to me when I hurled insults at him? How did he respond to me the other day when I did something willingly that I knew was going to break his heart? He responded with love and he welcomed me back into his family. The spirit of one who offers their life as a living sacrifice is going to mean bearing with one another in all of their failings and all of their ugliness and all of their weaknesses. And do you think that exists within the church among other Christians? Yes. <laughs> we can be ugly to each other. We can be mean. We can be really annoying. We can make each other bristle. But what have we been called to do? Love them in the same way that Christ has loved us. In Romans chapter 14, just to wrap this up really quickly, in Romans chapter 14, uh, Paul recognized that when you have Jews coming to faith in Christ and when you have Gentiles coming to faith in Christ and people from all over the world coming to Christ, it's going to be really messy. And people are going to come into this fellowship with different uh, um, presuppositions and, and, and preconceptions and things about how they should do this new life together. And some are going to want to hold to the, the cleanliness food laws. And, and Paul says, well, I feel like I can eat anything because I have complete freedom in Christ. But he says, what we ought not to do is tell people how stupid they are for applying what they have just come to know. We're all baby Christians in a sense. Applying what I have just come to know as a new relationship with Christ. Applying that in all my weird and messy ways. We should not condemn them. We should not try to shut them out because they haven't quite figured it out what it all means. But we should instead try as hard as we can to bear with one another in those unique expressions of our faith. And so he uses the example of Foods. Some may want to abstain from certain foods. 
Some may believe they're able to, they're free to eat all kinds of foods. If the one has a weaker or tender conscience, just be okay with it. Don't tell them they're stupid. Don't tell them they're wrong, but just embrace the fact that they're trying their best to love Jesus. If one esteems one holiday as greater than another, then, then so be it. But don't say, you too have to esteem this same holiday in the same way that I do, because that just nullifies freedom in Christ. Bring it into the 20th, 21st, what century are we living in? 21st century today. You see some of these, and maybe these won't be as, as relevant to you, but I've seen this done in the church the choice we make for how we will educate our kids. I've seen it divide churches, homeschool churches, public school churches, private school churches. Whether we should wear masks or not, I've seen it divide a church. How stupid is that? Church, that's stupid. Like if you're going to divide over whether or not to wear masks because one person believes that it is, is obeying Romans 13, submit, to our authorities who God has placed over us, and somebody else believes that that's um, a way of, of giving in and giving in to the infringements of our government, and you make that, you obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ over that silly little issue, you're stupid, you're foolish. Other examples of how women are employed. Should they be in the home? Should they be in the workplace? We're not given explicit directions in scripture. We are told women are to be working in the home. We are not told women are not to be working outside of the home. Maybe that one's, maybe that's like from 30 years ago or something. How we dress in church. I like to dress one way. My kids like to dress another way. I have not found a passage of scripture in the Bible that tells us, we have to absolutely dress in this particular way because if we dress in this way, then we are truly honoring Christ in our worship. Culturally, that may be true, but we are a people of all different cultures. And I love the fact that I can look out and it doesn't really seem to matter. So maybe these aren't that big a deal and maybe you can think of issues that are more likely to divide this church. But the point is that Christ has brought us together because of his gospel, because he has shown us mercy. And when we come together, we put on display that mercy. We put on display the beauty of what he has brought together from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're told in Romans 14, 7, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. That, that, that you'll spend the rest of your life trying to obey this verse, I'm pretty sure. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. All of this puts on display for all nations the glory of his mercy. All of these logical responses to being born again of his spirit are born out of a response to what Christ has done for you. Paul says, uh, this is Romans 15, 8. Yep, 15, 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Christ became a servant to the Jews to confirm God's truthfulness in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God 
for his mercy. Life in the Spirit is all about displaying God's mercy in order that others would come to see and know that same mercy. And then Paul concludes the letter by reminding the Romans of the purpose, of his purpose and his aims in ministry. And what is Paul's purpose and aim in all of his ministry? It's to make the gospel known as far and wide as possible. It's to make the glories of Jesus known as far and wide as possible. And it provides a good example for how our lives should be as Christians. And this letter is really an invitation to this church to then share in the work that he is doing with all joy and love and prayer, which is yet another mercy of God. The fact that he has invited us into a fellowship to share these things together. And so I want to conclude this morning the way that Paul concludes this letter with his benediction so that you can get a sense of what this glorious calling is that you have all been called to as ones who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, where he begins. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.